You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. We're in week three of Habakkuk. And what we've been learning is how in the world do you live in a world like this? Habakkuk was living in a world like this. We have been feeling we are going through some tough times, some dark moments, some things in history that just don't seem to be jiving. It it doesn't seem to get getting better. Or maybe your sentiment's different. There are some people who say, oh yeah, everything's good, things are getting better, things are improving. But the majority of people, it seems like, are having this mood of, hmm, which direction are things going in this world, and who's in control? Uh, most Americans, I would say, think that we are going through some times of division, and violence even, and coercion, and tribalism. Everybody's at each other and pointing the finger elsewhere. We're not sure how things are going to go, or if our children are going to have a better life than we've had. I think my parents growing up worked hard, and they felt like hard work was going to work. And then we went to college, and we did something, and they thought our lives were going to be better than theirs. And overall, it has been. I'm not so sure I always feel that way about my children and what they're going to face. Okay? Well, Habakkuk would understand all this. He really would. There were dark days for him. Um, when he wrote this letter, this just three-chapter letter, there was a great moral collapse that had gone on. He was questioning what God was doing in Israel. Uh, there was corruption. There was idolatry. There was injustice of how everybody was being treated within Israel. And then, and outside of it, God had just said the last, the first, you know, how was God going to do? What was God going to do? He was going to then take an even more ruthless violent and ungodly nation, the Babylonians, to use that as discipline against Israel. And Habakkuk's, what in the world are you doing, God? How are you doing that? How is that ever going to work out? So, dark days. He wonders what he's going to do. And he struggles through all of this in this book. And we're in the middle of it here in chapter 2. And I'd say, if you take the journey with Habakkuk today through this book, it might not change the dark days that are around us, whether they are personally dark or um, nationally or internationally dark, but I think it'll give you the resilience to be ready to handle it. You won't be at loose ends to understand what's really going on. And you'll be able to say things as they are. You're going to see it like it really is, but also not lose hope at the same time to understand God does work through difficult times. So today we're learning two things. Um, Understanding the source of evil and also being consoled in the midst of evil. So let's read the text. This is Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 5 and following to the end of the chapter. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man, who is never at rest, His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people shall plunder you. 
for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house. By cutting off many peoples, you have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood, and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire, and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink, who pours out your wrath and makes them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come against you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them, for the blood of man and the violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake, to a silent stone, Arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath in it at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Long reading. And after that, you go like, yeah, that's why I don't read the Old Testament. <laughs> like, what is he talking about? It's poetry. Um, actually, uh, he uh, has its five woe oracles. Woe. Have you ever used the word woe? Maybe if you're on a horse, but that's not the same. That's not the word, woe, W-O-E, woe. We don't use it in much of our speech today, and you kind of wonder, what is this about? Is Habakkuk trying to or asking for God to take vengeance on this nation of Babylon and how corrupt and terrible it is? No. Woe is really a warning word. It's kind of a, hey, do you see what's going on? Do you understand what's happening? Um, so Erhard Gerstenberger, in an article I read on um, just prophetic woes, and there are a number in the Old Testament, which is kind of weird. Um, he says, there seems no willful intent in the woes to call down destruction upon the people concerned. The misdeeds as expressed in the particle constructions bear the impending misfortunes in themselves. I know that's a scholar, so it's like, what is he? He's basically saying, Woe is a word that is used to say, watch out, warning, do you understand what's going on? And Habakkuk is saying, within your own violence is your own destruction um, embedded. Within the things that you are doing as a nation, you are already sowing the seeds of your downfall, Babylon. It's kind of like um, I was watch listening to a podcast this week, and... Um, I've heard this before, I think, and one of uh, RJ, who is on this podcast, it's a group of three Christians talking about different things. He said he heard a definition for hell, and hell is getting everything you want. Have you ever thought of that? If you actually had everything your heart's desires, every one of my desires gets fulfilled the way I wanted it, it would cause my own destruction. Honestly, it would. And that's kind of what's happening to Babylon. They got everything they wanted, 
and more. They took all the nations over. They were at the top of the game. And pride becomes, comes before the fall. And we see that in this instance. And Habakkuk in these woes is not just warning Babylon, but also Judah, his own people. He basically is saying, don't go there. Don't do as the Babylonians do. Don't act like they do. Don't be part and parcel with what, don't get into that. Don't fight fire with fire. Don't attack. Don't be vicious. Don't use their tactics. Those things are destructive in themselves. Instead, there's an alternative. And the alternatives to live by faith, and I believe last week Carl brought that up very strongly. There is another way to be faithfully present in this world because we have a God who is faithfully present, even in the midst of difficult times. So we're going to look at these two points to understand the source of evil and be consoled by the, in the midst of evil. And I think we'll understand how we can then live in this world that we are in right now. Whether it is dark days or not, I'm not quite sure where things are going. But whatever it is, we can handle it with God's help. So understanding first the source of the evil. Now, like I kind of mentioned, and I think you can see, most people today, from political pundits to social sociologists, to economists, to religious leaders across the board in the United States are seeing a lot of problems in our society. We're kind of divided. We're a culture that's wondering whether we're going to survive this moment. Have you ever felt that? Are we going to make it through this? This is another crisis, similar probably to the Civil War movements in American history. Maybe I was too young through Vietnam and that era. I was just a kid, so I was living in kind of the, my wonder years, if you've ever watched those shows. So I didn't notice what was going on in society, but maybe those moments were like that too. And this is in the United States. There are every, there's many different uh, nations and places that have gone through crises where it's just dark moments that you're just wondering if you're going to get through it and how you're going to get through this. But from our perspective, we're in one of those times as well right now. And have you noticed where people are saying where the problem is? Over there. Wherever over there is, right? Um, everybody is saying the problem is them. And the them or the they or the not us, not me, them. Secular people are looking at how religion is so involved in power politics these days and how terrible that is. And religious people are seeing that secularists are trying to strip our culture of any morals and ethics. Conservatives are blaming liberals. Liberals are blaming conservatives. Everyone is acting like a lawyer. And if you are a lawyer in our midst today, please forgive me. I'm not trying to say it's a bad occupation. But a lawyer's job is to point the blame at somebody else and to try to declare your client innocent of all things. <clears throat> We're always defending ourselves. We're always degrading and attacking others. But the Bible does not have the perspective of a lawyer, nor a pers perspective of a political pundit. It has the perspective here, like Habakkuk, of a prophet. And the prophet 
says, it's not so simple. The prophet says, it's not just those people or that situation. So Habakkuk talks five woes here. And you could say it's woe to those who are warmongers, woe to those who are greedy, woe to those who exploit other people and build up their own little uh, lives by using others, woe to those who fashion up idols, woe, woe to those who exploit the earth. And, and the Babylonian culture was all of those things. But Habakkuk doesn't say, yeah, and all we have to do is get rid of Babylon and the world's problems are solved. No, it doesn't work that way. Just before the first verse that I read, and I think it was the end of potentially what Carl uh, preached on last week, we have Habakkuk 2, verse 5, where Habakkuk says, this is the source. This is where it all comes from. This is why there is such wickedness in this world right now that's being manifest in Babylon. He writes, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol, like death he has never enough. In other words, Babylon is filled with such arrogance, and these people are empty inside and always trying to fill themselves up with more. And so they're questing for glory and for fame and for dominance and for this and for that, and it's never enough. As no matter how many people they subjugate, no matter what they do, no matter how much money they build up, no matter how great their economy is, no matter how tall their buildings are or their monuments or anything else they do, it's never enough. They're empty. It's void. So tell me, why do people seek glory or fame, or honor? Have you ever asked that question? What, what's really behind it? Um, actually, um, this week I was studying, looking at this, and I found a dissertation by Eric Martirano that's called, that was called Glory Seeking, a Timeless and Puzzling Craving of the Human Soul. Okay? He wrote an entire dissertation on this and looked through philosophically different people from Socrates and Plato to uh, John Paul Sartre and everybody in between to say, why is it that human beings innately seem to be seeking for glory and for fame or for honor or for status? What is it about us? And he couldn't really answer the question. He said, Plato among all the other Greek philosophers, basically said it's just innate. We just do it. That's what we are. Human beings are glory seekers. And John Paul, uh, Thomas Hobbes, a political theorist, said, well, yeah, we seek glory, but let's try to use it for our social advantage over others. And then finally, John Paul Sartre said, we seek glory as an existentialist philosopher to say we seek it because then we feel important and we make a mark in this world in some form. At least we know we matter if we get it. I don't think this, you know, it's funny. I read the, uh, the summary of the dissertation and still walked away going like, but why do we do that? Why seek glory? And then I recall um, someone, actually, who grew up just 30 miles from where I, I lived in Michigan. She grew up in Bay City, Michigan, uh, Madonna. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know her but uh, just a couple years older than me. 
1991, I think she kind of nailed it in a Vanity Fair interview about her life. And she wrote this about why she keeps questing after more and being on stage. She says, I have an iron will, and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I'm always struggling with that fear. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage and think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. And I find a way to get myself out of that again and again. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended and probably never will. Yeah. Huh. Now, what's really, what is she seeking after? What is she hungry for? What is she so empty about? Why is she not quite sure? Lewis Smeets, I think, does a better job. <laughs> I know, pretty sad. But he, from a Christian perspective, he writes about this whole glory-seeking thing that we've had from the beginning, that... Habakkuk said, this whole nation is seeking after glory, Babylon, and yet they're going to be filled with shame and emptiness and arrogance is never getting there. This goes all the way back, Lewis Mead says, to Adam and Eve in the garden. He said, he writes, pride in the religious sense is the arrogant refusal to let God be God. It's a grab, to grab God's status for self. Pride is turning down God's invitation to join the dance of life as a creature in the garden and wishing instead to be the creator, independent, relying on one's own resources. Pride is a grand illusion, the fantasy of fantasies the cosmic put on. The fantasy that we can make it as little gods leaves us empty at the center. Vanity is emptiness. A person who is empty at the center of life is vain, and a vain person is almost always arrogant. Life becomes a campaign to use people to support oneself and a constant battle to avoid having others use oneself that way. Vanity creates the need to use people because we cannot keep our balance spiritual if we are empty at the center. Now, with what Smeeds writes, do you kind of see yourself in that a little? If you don't, just keep coming back to Thrive. We'll get you there. <laughs> I'm not, some people wonder sometimes, how do you, um, the person I have to preach to first when I start writing something like this is me. <laughs> um, not that I'm trying to be egotistical, but this, uh, all of this applies to me. This is me. This is who I am. This is what I am at heart. Um, and it's scary. And if I got everything I wanted, like I said, that would be, whoa. <laughs> That's a whoa. The pride at the center of every human heart is the source of the evil that we see in this world. And our emptiness, always trying to fill it with something, whether it's on a national basis like the Babylonians to try to exploit everyone else, to subjugate every nation on earth, whatever it is. It can be done nationally. It can be done by a corporation. It can be done by a, a team. It can be done by a tribe. We are at each other's throat trying to, to one-up each other all the time. And that's why you see so much cruelty in this world. 
Now, someone who understood this cruelty pretty well firsthand experience is a man named Alexander Zolzhenitsyn. And I don't know if you've ever heard of him. <clears throat> he is or was a Christian. He died a few years ago, like probably in the 50s, I think. Sorry to say. Um, I guess that's a few years now, isn't it? <laughs> Man, it just feels like, well, you know. It's a life. Thank you, Hugo. I don't, I wasn't born in the 50s, but my sister was. She might be watching right now. Um, but anyways, he faced the, uh, the Stalinist era and the evils of Stalin and the whole Soviet Empire and the Gulag, and he wrote a book that I believe got a Nobel Prize called The Gulag Archipelago. And in it, he does not act like a lawyer and say, if we just get rid of the Stalinists, everything will be okay. Or if we get rid of communism, or if we get rid of this ideology or that ideology, he does not do that. He is much more prophetic like Habakkuk. He gets down to what's really going on. And it's hard to read this, but it's I think so right on. He writes in that book, if only it were so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? Confronted by the pit into which we were, are about to toss those who have done us harm, we halt stricken dumb. It is, after all, only because of the way things worked out that they were the executioners and we weren't. Ouch. Why in the world do we need to understand the source of evil in this world? You might go like, well, what good does that do? Well, it stops me from trying to just seek glory and use other people. It stops me from trying to point the blame somewhere else. And right now, one of the worst things that's happening, I believe, in our society is the fact that we're always pointing the finger somewhere else. And then we become the victimizers by doing that. Even though we may have been the victims, we become the victimizers. And we're just creating even more problems and not solving anything. I become self-righteous trying to get rid of that group or this group or push this group out of power and get this group in. As if the Bible says, you know, the problem is these people and the answer is these people. No. The, the Bible says the problem is sin and the answer is Jesus. Grace. Um, <laughs> kind of a little side note. Um, when I was a pastor in Gainesville, Florida for 10 years, I had an older member, I think, God rest his soul, he, I think he has passed away at this point in time, who's dearly devoted, very, very wanted, cared about society and all, but he always was trying to get me, he was in his 80s at the time, to get me to preach on certain social issues, specific social issues. It just happened to be social issues that at his age he had no temptation in anymore. <laughs> you know, that, all those kids doing these things, you know, those juvenile delinquents. He wanted me to preach on those types of subjects, right? And I refuse because it's so easy in the church 
and you might hear it in Christian churches and in among pastors and clergies and leaders in the church to the point the finger elsewhere. And all it does is make us feel so self-righteous. The real message then would be today, aren't we great? We're so much better than they are. They're just so terrible. Can you believe how bad they are? That is not the message of the Bible. That is not the message of Habakkuk. That is not the message that we will ever have here at Thrive. The problem is sin that cuts through every human heart. And the solution is repentance and humility starting with the people of God. And that starts helping us to be freed to look at this world and not cause more problems in this world by trying to get rid of this or do this in some simplistic fashion, but to see that we're going to serve the world in a different way as Christians with faithful presence. So first we understand the source of evil. The second point is to be consoled in the face of it. Now what's fascinating in this passage, that's the second point, Hugo. There we go. You got it. You got it. Too many buttons. Okay. Um, what's amazing in, in this passage, and, and that's maybe why it was so confusing when we were reading it too, is in the middle of this section of five different woes, you get going on these woe is this and woe is that and woe is that. After the third woe, there's this like break in this passage that just shoots like a piece of light, you know, a, a shimmer of light in the midst of the darkness of these woes. And then after the fifth woe, there is another shimmer of light that shines in in the midst. And it's like, what, this doesn't even fit. These two passages don't fit at all. They are out of um, the whole, exactly. That's how the grace of God comes in. It doesn't make sense. It isn't cashed into the system. It cannot be uh, extrapolated from what's going on in Babylon or in Israel or the human heart. It comes from outside. It's the promises of God. It's how God works in this world. And these two passages, the first is in Habakkuk 2.14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And the second passage is Habakkuk 2.20, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. This is where we get hope. And we're going to look at this second passage first. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. In other words, God is still God. God was still God even though Babylon was Babylon. And Israel was Israel. And it was all a mess. God was still God. God cannot be challenged. Everybody needs to be silent before him. Nobody can say, wait a minute, God, you can't. God is sovereign and overall. He's still in charge in the midst of this world right now. And you might go like, well, th wait a minute then, John. If he's in charge and things are the way they are, does he want it this way? Is this what he really wants? Is this God's will? That'd be kind of a fatalistic answer, you know? And the answer to that is no. He doesn't create puppets. We're not just on a string. We just don't do what he wants, no matter what, consciously or unconsciously. 
We're not human robots. On the contrary, the way God has set up this world is he's choosing our freedom. And what we have here is this, wait a minute, the world is a mess, and we are responsible for the mess, yet God is sovereign and in control. What we have here is what's called an antimony. It's probably something you, it's not the, I think, isn't there a stone or a uh, precious stone that's called, what? Antimony. Antimony, yeah. But this, antimony, is a seeming contradiction, a paradox. God is in control. The beauty of it is that I mess up my life time and again. I've made some bad decisions. I am responsible for them. I sin. And yet God can still put all this mess together in a beautiful way and bring out his ultimate purpose in my life. God chooses to work in such a way that even with my fallen and foolish decisions and choices, my rebellion and cruelty, and even the violence that's in this world has not thwarted his purposes for you or for me, for anyone that he has chosen and called by his name. It doesn't get in the way of God. He can use it all. And why I can say that is not simply that Habakkuk says God is in his holy temple, let all the earth keep silence, or other passages that talk about God's sovereignty in this way. But we know in one specific instance where all hell did break loose, where all violence was totally unjust, where an innocent man, perfect man, the only innocent man, was cruelly put to death, where the foolish decisions of his disciples to run away where another disciple betrays him, where, the, where, where Pilate <coughs> chooses his own skin, political expediency over the life of a human being, where injustice was truly meet out to an individual that deserved none of this, where it wasn't just a human being, but it was God himself in the flesh is crucified on that day, and all hell broke loose, all wrath broke loose, all evil broke loose, and God does his greatest work there. So Romans 8, I don't have this passage in there, says, He who did not spare his own son, Romans 8.32, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also work out all things good for us in him? A little of a paraphrase there, but basically, because God did that, we know God is in charge of our lives in the midst of the mess because of that day. God is not leaving his throne. And in fact, Jesus, according to the Gospel of John, was on his throne when he is crucified there for us. That was his throne and the way he chose to reign and to save us. And our second shot of light in the midst of our darkness comes in the verse 214. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is what we get to look forward to. This is the future God has for us because of Jesus Christ, no matter what. Now, did you notice I talked about how we seek glory while we're looking for glory? It's because we have fallen away from God's glory. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We emptied ourselves of God's glory to seek our own, and we found that we can't find anything that fills us up. And yet God is going to 
He promises to give us his very own glory, to bestow on us his blessing, honor, and status. And we don't deserve it at all. That's what grace is. We don't deserve it. In fact, Habakkuk says so much in this chapter 2, verse 16. He says, you will have your fill of shame instead of glory. That's what he says. And that's kind of the shocker of the cross as well. I don't know if you realize that. Jesus was filled with shame, not glory. He empties himself of all of his glory, according to Philippians chapter 2. He pours himself out. He humbles himself to even the point of death on a cross, which was the most shameful way to die, exposed for the world, ridiculed, treated, totally vulnerable, totally, absolutely dehumanized there, all for you and for me. He loses his status as a son so that you and I are the sons and daughters of God. He takes on our shame to give us his glory. He was exploited so he can empower us to be his very own. Jesus basically takes on the sins of Babylon and Israel and every nation and everything that's going on because what he wants to give is not wrath or shame. He became the woe on the cross to give us the blessing of God forever. Isn't that just, it just blows me away. So what does this all mean? So what's the other way to live in this world? In a culture right now that's pointing the fingers everywhere else and blaming everybody else for the problems, we can stop trying to seek glory for ourselves because we've been given it fully. We don't have to exploit others or use others or try to take advantage of others in any way because we've already got it. The earth is going to be filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That is the future we have in Christ guaranteed. So instead, I don't have to attack that group or this group or think that's the problem or simplify it that way, but I can see how I've been part of the game, how I've played power games with others, and instead I can serve and to give. The idol of self has been toppled over, and Jesus gets to reign supreme. So I think Habakkuk profound, nuanced, amazing, complex, and yet uh, a great word of hope in the midst of dark times. We can understand the source of evil. We can also be consoled in the midst of anything that's going on because of the way God has worked in his son and given us his very life, his very glory. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time, for this um, hard word from Habakkuk, and yet at the same time, Lord God, a beautiful word. We are living, it seems, in dark times, and we're not sure how it's going, and yet we know, Lord Jesus, we know the future you have for us, that your glory will cover this earth. 
will permeate all of creation, even our lives, as the waters cover the, the sea, Lord God. That that is where you're leading everything. And through the death and resurrection of your son, Lord, you have guaranteed this for each one of us. We thank you for this word of Habakkuk, Lord. Help us not to so simplify the issues in this world and to objectify and treat people and demonize them, Lord. There's just too much of that going on these days. Help us rather in repentance and brokenness come before you and plead for mercy for our brothers and sisters and all around us to understand as Alexander Zoltanitsyn did that the problem isn't them, the problem is in all of us. And the solution is not to get rid of those people, but Lord, through your crucifixion that we've been crucified, through your resurrection we are resurrected, and that we can love one another, forgive one another, and serve one another as you have served us. And Lord, help us as a church as well to live in such a posture in this world, um, to love people who may hate us in response, who, to... Uh, to serve people who might uh, not be thankful for what we do, to look to you for our glory. You are the lifter of our head. You are the one who gives us all that we need. And so, Lord, we do lift up a number of members here at Thrive who are facing difficulties with health. We pray for Bob and for Karen, for Otto. Lord, we pray your healing hand upon them all. We lift up to you those who are grieving, Lord, those who see such violence and injustice in this world in one form or another and are, are grieving and mourning today, Lord, that you would comfort them, that you grieve with them, Lord, that you've come alongside of them, that you would show your faithful presence to them and your faithful presence through them to this world, Lord God. Help us to be such a church that would serve and to give as you have given to us. And Lord, as we... Um, we'll receive the offering. We just want to give thanks to you, Lord God, for what you've done in our lives, that this is just a token of all the blessings you've poured out. We can never pay you back, Lord. We can never give. Out. We, there's no way to outgive you, Lord God. You are so good. So we just offer ourselves as we offer our gifts. May they be used for your kingdom, and may you, Lord, bring about your glory on this world so it permeates and covers this world as the waters cover the sea. And Lord, prepare our hearts, Lord. Forgive us, bring us to that point of repentance and humility to receive all that you have for us in the Lord's Supper this morning. As you gave of yourself again so vulnerably and openly to your disciples, those who would betray you and walk away from you and run away and deny you, Lord, yet you gave yourself Give yourself to us, Lord Jesus. And may we be thankful and praise you and celebrate the gift that you are to us. All this we pray in your precious name, dear Jesus. Amen.